come in, lap after lap after lap, and what does he do? He ignores them. A committee meeting about it, stick it on and send him out. Just get it through the bus stop chicane, George, try and straight line it, get to the line and we'll see what happens. Paris tries to cut off Hamilton, oh! who rolls up and goes straight on. This is kind of appalling, this is the worst start for a Grand Prix that I have ever seen in the whole of my life. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Unqualified. Graham is here. My co-host G is here. And G, I got to tell you, this week I am more excited to see you maybe than most. Uh, you know, this was a week of high activity from F uh, from the FIA and Formula One's governing body. And you happen to be someone whose skepticism for governing bodies in general is probably only ri- rivaled by Edward Snowden. So no one is more qualified in this instance, to speak on what went down in Austria yesterday than you. Welcome, buddy. It's great yeah, to thanks, see you. Thanks, man. I'm glad to hear that uh, paranoia constitutes credibility these days, so um, <laughs> I'm well-suited. Um, exciting weekend. We had the sprint. We had the race. Starting out, Verstappen looked like he had the pace, but ultimately was at a loss middle of the race on hard tires. Uh, he also be appeared to fall off with the mediums at the end of the sprint as well, which it seems uh, Leclerc confidently stating, we'll get him tomorrow. Um, Pretty skeptical at that at at first, but it seems he was right. Ferrari, as a result, nearly dominating with a a 1-2 finish before Sainz having some late race engine failure, uh, setting his car on fire and leaving Leclerc, Verstappen, and Hamilton on the podium. Mercedes, despite a difficult qualifying session, two crashes, uh, which is almost unprecedented for them. Hamilton more so impacted starting in 10th. Um, and then at the start of the race, Russell having to take a new wing, but ultimately reliability was the key to success, still landing them a three, four finish. The only two, uh, are the only team of the top three to have both drivers finish the race. Uh, and going into the weekend, Graham, both you and I were pretty confident that Verstappen would be untouchable on the track, but, um, as it seems more often than not, we were both very, very wrong. Um, I've been, I've been accused of a lot of things and I talk a lot of shit, but I will be willing to eat my crow on this one. And I hope to, to be able or willing to do that on a regular basis. We, we both last week truly did say we thought he would be untouchable. And I was genuinely skeptical of Charles's comments and genuinely shocked at Ferrari's pace. I think they actually surprised themselves to some degree. Um, so yeah, I mean, good, good on him. Um, wasn't, didn't see it coming. Well, and we'll get into more of them in a moment, but I I think you've said this before. It, It really is a testament to how close this championship is this year, both between the top teams and also how really any of the points fluctuations always coming to the, the sort of unforeseen event in the race. Um, and even as you look at it today, look Ferrari trailing Red Bull, but still a couple of races, some bad luck. They're right there in it. So it's neck and neck this year. I, I was, I was thinking to myself, uh, as Carlos Sainz was chasing down max in the last, what, 20 laps before his engine blew up. I was thinking to myself, man, if something bad happens to max, like, in the final stint of this race, and Carlos goes, they go one-two, game on. Like, basically, consider it tied in the constructors, and it was just that continued reminder to me of, like, we're not even at the summer break yet, man. This is not a done deal, not even by a mile. 
not even how many times, regardless how many times Ferrari's engine blows up or how many times they just boggle the strategy of a race. Like the reality is they have time to sort it, which is, you know, it's exciting. It makes the season more compelling. And throughout the weekend, I mean, busy weekend with the sprint, lots of on-track action, wheel-to-wheel battling, sprint race. We had, in the real race, we had cars going five wide practically. But um, the the drivers weren't the only one busy this weekend, as you've already alluded to. The FIA was equally as busy, uh, not to be outdone by the action on track and wanting a bit of their their space on, on the production, on the broadcast, uh, between track limits, collisions, people leaving meetings early, which thank God we don't have that because I would be broke at this point, uh, as well as people talking to their physios before getting weighed. Uh, they, they left no stone unturned. So, um, but before we, before we spend too much time on that, I do want to get back to, to some of the on-track action. Um, the amount of overtaking in this race was extraordinary. The quality of the racing was high. I mean, what was your, what was your take on, on the events overall? Look, it's not like I've been following F1 for 10 years, but I just don't think it's that frequent. You already called out the five-car pack that was like Joe, Alonzo, Norris was a part of that. The Haas. The Haas, yeah. Like, that wasn't that wasn't like in the first five laps. <laughs> that was like after the first pit window. Tons of cars on track. They should have been spaced out. Like, that d- doesn't happen. Um, I haven't looked at the data yet to compare Austria like two years prior over this year anecdotally it felt like there was even more overtaking and i just don't think we can continue i we we cannot we've got to continue to give credit to the regulations of these cars and that it continues to be effective the quality of the racing is really is very exceptional um and there was a little bit of like drs training that occurred to some degree in the sprint race because that's often one of the criticisms people surface about the sprint races but uh not to the extent of like what we saw at Imola earlier this year where it persisted for 20 or 30 laps and like you just completely gave up on the notion that like Hamilton was going to get through. It's very different than that. And so, um, yeah, I, I just, it's a delight for fans. I think they just, they've done a great job. They deserve a lot of credit. Well, and I also wonder, so, well, so first off, how does one say plural Haas? Is it Haas or is it Haas's? Haas I? Heiss. Heist. Ah, heist. The heist did quite well. Yes. <laughs> um, well, and, and in addition to that, I, it makes me wonder, and I haven't made up my mind on this, but if it changes the the dynamic between street and, and traditional circuits, because I think while you saw some decent racing on the, the street courses, I think the quality of the racing in, in traditional tracks has been so high. And look, I don't count really Miami as, as a, as a street track, I'm thinking Monaco, Monaco, Baku, you could largely say even, um, Australia in there, but it just seems like the cars, the ability to follow, especially lends themselves well to these traditional tracks and the ability to kind of fight back and forth. And you're not getting as bottled up. Uh, like you wouldn't have seen this five car turn in, in any of the street courses. And so it was just a good reminder of how special some of these tracks are, especially as many of them are, on the chopping block nowadays. Um, it's, it's good to see the, all these tracks with the rule changes and just how exciting they can be. And hopefully will continue to be as, as cars sort of converge around their design philosophies. 
Um, so one, a lot of tremendous battling. Can I, can yeah. I, can I, can I respond to that real quick? Yeah. I think you make a, a an actually a, a very interesting point. I hadn't thought about Shockingly. it before. <laughs> about the, the way that the regulations are changing the relationship between traditional street, uh, and fit for purpose tracks. But also we got to think about the fact that like, what, what is a street circuit anymore anyway? Right. Cause your point, Miami is paved and fit for purpose to, to it's street by design. The walls are closer, but like the asphalt is very much built to be a very high end racetrack. Jetta is the exact same way. It's a street track, but it's not really right. But for tracks that aren't that way, like Monaco, like Singapore, where the pavement can't afford to be perfectly even and fit for purpose, that has a real impact on the consistency that ground effect cars have in their downforce as they make their way around the track. We've seen Mercedes suffer suffer from uneven pavement. They've got it worse than most people, but the reality is a ground effect car in general, a car built with a ground effect philosophy, is happier on a more consistent, fit for racing purpose service and so yeah i think there is something to be said about the potential that that has to accelerate the change that f1 already has away from some of these more traditional street circuits especially monica so well and i think it just sets up a a tremendously interesting end of the season because it it really was set up as a season of two halves um and so yeah as it's dominated as the second half is dominated by these traditional street circuits uh, albeit I think Austin might lend itself some challenges to the ground effects car, given it's, it's bumpy surface anyway. Um, yeah, I think you'll see the likes of again, Mercedes probably not anticipating some of those challenges early on be well served by the, the more traditional circuits. So, um, it's even hard to draw some judgment from the first half to, to what we'll see in the, the rest of the season. So, um, as we think about the race though, in particular, um, let's go through some of the, the high points. Um, or maybe I guess these are more like low points, but first and foremost, curious, we gotta, we gotta hit the controversy points, right? Teams aside, w- we need to see the blood in the water. Um, first and foremost, Perez, Russell collision early in the race, going around turn four Perez, obviously in a hurry to, to make progress and, and catch up with the leaders. Russell on the inside. Uh, it, it seemed pretty clear, clean going through the turn, made contact. Perez spins out, gets damage to his side pod, tries to proceed for a handful of laps. Honestly, more than I was expecting. I, I thought they should have retired the car early. I think it was what 20 after lap 20 that they finally retired him. I think they were maybe hoping for some kind of safety car or, or something like that, but it didn't come. So they ultimately retired him. Uh, and Russell got a five second penalty for being fully at fault for the contact in their determination. But what was your take on the, on the collision? Yeah. I mean, I think when you watch the onboards and then you read the driver standard, like of how it's written for how you gain the right to space, you know, relative to where you are next to the the car, like Perez's wheels were clearly ahead by the apex. He was entitled to space. Uh, The Mercedes argument that Toto and Russell since made after the fact was like, I get how the standard's written, but they've got to have some sympathy for the fact that like I was in full lock and I couldn't have turned in any further to the inside. I did everything I could to avoid the collision and he went where there was just not in, into a turn. Not all turns are the same. This was a turn where you just weren't to have a, meant to have a car go around the outside. Like couldn't avoid him. I should get some credit for that. I don't buy that at all. 
you have to have a concrete standard. They enforced the concrete standard in the way that they should have. I think that the penalty was definitely justified. But the reality of it is for Perez that a five-second penalty to Russell does not restore the points he should have had from finishing in the top four of the race, or maybe even on the podium. And so he's got to be smarter. This is like probably the third time in recent memory that I've noticed Perez getting really eager to get up to the pace of the lead cars in the first two or three laps of a race and acting a little bit too quickly. I mean, if you think about it, man, like he just sits back, gets within like three tenths and gets a great exit out of turn, I guess it's 10 or 11 onto the, like he'll get Russell on the next straightaway or maybe not the home straight, but the one that follows it that goes kind of at the top of the hill in Austria. And so I think he just like, a driver as seasons as him should have a little bit more patience to understand, like, you got 70 more laps to race. You need to be scoring points for the team. Like, just have a little bit of patience, and you maybe don't – unless you're getting stuck behind him and you're in a DRS train and now you're five, six laps in and the leaders are off in the distance, then maybe get a little desperate. But, dude, not on the first lap. Like, it, it just seemed a little bit too risky for a guy that's been there before. I think he probably needs to dial that back just a tad. I know what he was doing, and I know why he wanted to get ahead of Russell so quickly, but I think he should have felt confident he was going to get multiple chances in the first three laps and been a little bit smarter about it. It's a great point, and and especially coming from somebody who is heralded for their ability to sort of manage tires, indicative of having a, a good understanding and patience for the race and how it can come to you and all the things that can happen. It is a bit surprising to see him be so impatient. I don't know if that's a, a legacy thing and being in slower cars and you need to capitalize on every opportunity that, that comes your way, but it, yeah, it's absolutely seemed foolish on his part. Admittedly, as hard as I was on Russell in the last time, like, I agree with you. You could say that about any turn you go long and don't break enough as well. I had the wheel in full lock. It's like, well, yeah, but you still didn't break enough and shot through the exit. I don't buy that really. But it wasn't an egregious mistake for him. Perez still had room on the outside. Agreed. I didn't see nothing like there was no overcorrection on Russell's side. Like it was a pretty consistent hold. And so, yeah, I, I think that one is pretty tricky to rate when you compare it to several of other instances of, again, as we talked about last week, drivers taking that corner to its extreme and not leaving any space on the outside. But it is interesting on how vocal helmet Marco was and really publicly chastising Checo to say, look, we, we talked about that exact thing and he still did it. I don't know why he made that turn. I, I found that a little bit odd of him. Oh, I didn't yeah, see I that guess. actually. Did yeah. He? Oh, okay. Hmm. It was a whole, and again, I guess we shouldn't expect anything different from Marco <laughs> to say exactly what happened with drivers and what he thinks about them. So yeah. a fair play to him, but it was a bit odd of, you know, debriefing and, and basically calling him out for kind of not following the direction of the team. But I mean, who doesn't know that on that corner at this point, regardless, like as you said, regardless of the points or the, the penalties that they dole out for pushing drivers wide, it never pays for what it costs the driver on the outside. So, and I thought Hamilton was really wise at multiple points, trying to push that a little bit, but always bailing out in particular with the, the, the battles with Schumacher. It'd be one thing if you had been behind, if he had been behind Russell and Hamilton and had a worry that there was going to be a DRS train he couldn't get through, or if he wasn't in a car that wasn't known for its straight line speed. And he was worried that he was going to be able to like, if he had been in a McLaren and had been, 
had a, had a Alpine in front of him, right? Like, I, maybe it's a little different there, but like to your point, I'm not surprised if the team had made that part of their briefing. I'm not surprised if they did because, like, rationality would tell you you don't need to rush it. Like, don't sit behind him for five laps, but like, you don't need to throw it down the inside on the first one. I so. mean, Hamilton finished 40 seconds off off the leader. So while we while we heralded their good success, it truly was their pace. reliability that led yeah. them to that success, n- not their pace. Agreed. And so I, I they had to see that earlier. So yeah, a bit dif- disappointing from from Perez. Um I guess moving on from the the Perez and Russell conflict, there was uh, a lot of other conflict off track this weekend that's made the headlines. Curious to get your perspective on the the social dynamics of racing. Um, just as a recap, throughout the weekend, starting in qualifying, you know, and this is on the heels of Silverstone, where you know much, much ado was made about the fans there booing Verstappen as he was announced. Uh, but then, as Hamilton, both Hamilton and Russell spun out during qualifying, hit the wall. The stadium erupted into sounds of cheers at at the Mercedes downfall. Um, and then subsequently, and even more uh, disappointing throughout the weekend, many reports of both verbal and even physical harassment of between fans uh, at the venue. So just starting off with, I guess, the reactions of, of the sport overall, the drivers, the teams, how do you think it was handled? Did any dri- any reactions in particular stand out to you as as effective? Let me actually pose a hypothetical. So let's take these in two parts. We'll do the booing first, and then we'll take the fan harassment second. If Hamilton's qualifying crash had been, let's say hypothetically, as severe as Joe's crash last week in Silverstone, let's say Hamilton spins out in a qualifying turn, hits a sausage curb, flips over, goes upside down into a barrier, do you think they're cheering then? I mean, my first reaction is I would like to say, no, I don't think so. I think that that would be absolutely egregious. But at this point, I wouldn't put it beyond people to do so. You give them more credit than me. I, I ah, Now that I've said it, now I'm doubting myself because originally I was I wanted to give the Dutch fans some credit. But then now that I'm yeah, you know what? No, I'm not going to give them any credit. Fuck them. I they haven't. I, have they earned it? Unfortunately, no. I mean, look, we are cheering for the same team as they are. But um, can you give them that credit? Have they earned well, it? I got to balance my disappointment with the Dutch fans overall with the fact that booing is in sports is kind of inevitable. Like, man, like, I guess the better question is, how is that any different than the opposing team throwing an interception? Well, because there's real danger on the line and like, okay, it's, can you expect fans to really discern the severity of a crash in real time and then boo appropriately? Probably not. Right. Like, if a guy spins out and he loses lap time, dude, boo all you want. Like, that to me is an interception, right? If you hit a barrier and the safety of the driver is somewhat in question, definitely over the line, right? That's like booing an injury in football. And that is definitely over the line. So it's it's tough to discern. I mean, like, look, Hamilton's crash did not look that severe. I mean, he kind of tank slapped the wall. He did go in sideways with both. He never would. The car was never like unstable. I'm trying to be sympathetic to them. It is shitty to boo a crash. I think at the end of the day, that's kind of an objective thing, but I don't know. What do you think? So booing failure is not a problem. Booing a crash. 
Let's wait to see how the driver is and then boo them. Well, but the reality is the booing is going to come before you can actually see the driver get out of the car. So yeah, I don't booing think sort really... of loses its effect as like a, rea- a, a secondary That's not a workable reaction. framework. Yeah, not a, <laughs> not a workable framework. You got to boo immediately in complete ignorance or you don't boo at all. Air, like in general, I think in these types of things, when you're a fan, you err on the side of caution. You never want to assume somebody's okay. Always assume the worst in those instances just to be safe. But it's also like there's douchebag, overly passionate fans that are alcohol you know, fueled every race, and I think it's never going to stop. And I think F1's got bigger fish to fry in terms of fixing the fan experience to the second topic we have to talk about, which was fan harassment, which to me was far, far worse. Uh, All right, well let's, well, let's go there. I think we've covered the booze sufficiently. So what I heard, and I, I didn't dig super deep into, like, how much of this was substantiated, what his law enforcement found out, Anything from an official law enforcement agency, I didn't see any of that. So I just, as that, that is baseline context. What I heard through social media were things like sexual harassment, a woman having her dress lifted up and being harassed by a bunch of Dutch fans because she had Mercedes gear on, being touched, verbal abuse, things like that, which to me is like all obviously extremely over the line. Um, you know, I'm a big college football fan. I've been to a lot of away games as a Clemson fan and in certain instances sat in the middle of a student section of another school, even a rival school, wearing like Clemson gear. You know, I've been cursed at. I've been spit on. I've had That's people bold. push me. Yeah, but like, I mean, I, but I'm also not a woman and I've never, like, I'm, I'm You've sure You've also that, been like, spit on outside of sporting events, so. Yeah, yeah, verbally and, and physically. But I, yeah, like, I'm not a woman. I don't have to deal with people and especially drunk men at sporting events, like groping and feeling all over me and acting like they're entitled to do it. And so it's definitely hugely unfortunate. You know, the sadder part about those things typically is um, how hard those types of things can be to substantiate because how long it takes law enforcement to get into the area. And then when they do get into the area, it's all eyewitness accounts, what he saw, she saw kind of. And so it's, it's hard to really bring justice in those types of situations sometimes when there's that many people in a really densely packed area. Well, especially so if it's, it's not really like at, if it's not at your seat, right? Right. It's almost impossible because when you're talking hundreds of thousands of people, people disappear into crowds. There's nothing concrete to go on. Like, what are you gonna say? He's wearing an orange shirt. It's like it's almost because of the anonymity. People feel more more emboldened and and more anonymous, which which is sad. Exactly. And I mean, obviously the right answer is not to just like look at that Mercedes fan and say, well, you shouldn't be exposing yourself and sitting in a environment like that. Like it, it should be like Giants fans should be able to sit in the middle of the Eagles stadium and watch a game and not be risk, you know, have their physical security or be harassed. Unfortunately, every Philly Eagles fan is a complete douchebag. And so that's not a reality at even Philly football games. Right. So like it happens other places. It's not just these Dutch fans. It's more often just people that are just like absolutely lit up on alcohol showing their true colors. And unfortunately, there's a lot of scumbags out there. And in those situations, you're just kind of reliant as a fan getting getting harassed. You're relying on good Samaritans around you to be an eyewitness and to defend you. And sometimes that just doesn't happen. And it's sad. Well, and I think, you know, already this season, there's been a lot of instances of different causes and that that drivers and teams have spoken out for and and i think in addition to the 
the racial issues that we saw a couple weeks ago. I think this is another another set of issues that is very close to home to the sport. And I, I, and I don't want to say controllable, but it's in their it's in their field of play that I actually think that they have a, a great opportunity to to speak about those issues that are most proximate to what they're doing, whether it be oil overall, right? Formula One is not a primary contributor to fossil fuels and pollution in the world. You know, Vettel can wear his helmet about saving the bees, but, you know, a little off topic. But these are things that are happening within and closely around the sport. And so while I'm not typically a person who loves the blending of the two, I do think if you're going to be vocal about things, let's be vocal about those things that are happening at tracks happening around the sport. And so I think them leaning into these types of things that we've seen over the last month or so are actually really healthy. And I would hope to see more of those kinds of conversations than, um, you know, saving the polar bears. Yep. Agreed. Which I do happen to support as well. I'm very pro polar bear. That's good to know. I'm going to file that one away. (laughs) Um, Speaking of, of pollution and quite maybe literally toxic fandom, the, (laughs) The the other thing we noticed off track was, which made its way onto the track, was the very evident orange flares. Now, they were interesting and fun for as far as I can remember. Um, however, I will admit it does seem like it was more extreme this year, almost to the point of entire grandstands being blocked out, the track being significantly <laughs> encumbered with the haze. Uh has it gone too far and and is there truly a risk of creating some sort of issues on track well the the red line is clearly impeding a driver's visibility during a racing lap that's like the like you can't do that and i think that there was reports of flares being thrown over the fence and into the grass area next to the track which is obviously not ideal there were also you know uh i think that and also these flares, I've I've noticed them since like early in my F1 fandom, and I always kind of ask myself like, that doesn't seem okay. <laughs> like if the wind changes, that could be a big issue. Um, but they actually finally did pose the question to Max, Charles, and Lewis in the drivers' uh, post race press conference, and Lewis and Charles in particular both said like, yeah, on the formation lap and the victory lap, it was a serious issue, and I couldn't see the apex right like. Not that it matters. You're not trying to find the racing lines as much on those laps, but like, can we trust fans to use their discretion to not release them in the same volume during a racing lap? And if that happens, that's like an actually pretty significant safety issue. Prior to this weekend, I would have said potentially yes, but uh, again, the credibility has sort of been shot on all of these other issues. So I I guess you'd have to say no, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to trust fans to at their discretion only throw out flares during non-racing laps. Um, yeah, only within the three minutes yeah. preceding the formation lap. Yeah. Now, the good news about flares is if you light one, it's pretty obvious who you are. So, like, <laughs> you know, like when you're holding it. So, I guess, no, you know, be surprised. If, if they came up with a policy, it would be easier to enforce. Um, but, yeah, I, in the, well, here, here's, the other, here's the real rub of it for me, though. If I'm a fan... I, I saw some point of view videos filmed from the grandstands when that yeah. stuff was going on. Dude, if I'm a fan and I just paid a thousand dollars to be at that goddamn race and I can't see the first fucking lap because orange smoke is in the air, like I'm pissed. 
Like people were literally like covering. <laughs> people were literally had their noses tucked into their shirts on lap one, couldn't see shit, and were watching the first lap from their phone. That would piss me off if I was a fan. I didn't see any of it in Miami. I don't know if you did in Montreal, but that would make me very angry. I'd probably complain to like the actual race venue if that affected me as a fan. Yeah, I'd like to think I'd be like more hip than that, but I mean, I was already like visibly angry at the guy in front of me that had an umbrella in the middle of a yeah. downpour. So I you talked about that guy for like twenty minutes. <laughs> I don't think I would be very forgiving. I don't think I'd be very forgiving. So yeah, that that would definitely be frustrating. Um, all right. So beyond uh, beyond co- uh, contact, beyond crazy fans, once again, um, we have to give the FIA their much desired center spotlight in the episode. Um, aside from the other penalties they doled out for silly things, uh, they did have a a lot to do this weekend when it came to track limits significantly enforcing those rules, both in qualifying and the race, most notably Perez being basically he was allowed to pass into Q3 and finish qualifying while Gasly sat on the bubble and in P11 was ultimately bumped out in Q2 um, only to have retroactively Perez bumped to 13th place. But in the race, multiple drivers ultimately penalized receiving five second penalties um, what was your take on, on their enforcement this weekend? Did you feel like it was legitimate? Was it excessive? It was definitely objective. Uh, that was one thing. It that was not was. one of the options. Yeah. Sorry. It was, it was objective, which is better than subjective in general. It did feel excessive. I don't know if that's because it truly was excessive or it was just an outlier relative to what we usually see that doesn't necessarily make it wrong. The drivers were clearly annoyed. Um, look, my utopia is that track limits would enforce themselves because going outside the track was going to end your race like gravel. Um, and you let the track design and kind of mother nature, if you will dictate the lines that the drivers take to me, that's the optimal model, but that isn't practical on every racetrack. It's true in certain turns in Austria, but it's not true in every turn. It's definitely, I think the biggest one was turn 10, right? Coming into the home straight was like the big violator. Yeah, either on the entry, I guess it was what, the exit of turn nine or the exit of turn 10. Both of those yeah. last two corners catching a lot of uh, a lot of penal, uh, infractions. I will say I'm not particularly sympathetic to the drivers. Uh, Max in particular in the post-race press conference, Hamilton on his team radiator in the car we're kind of like bitching and moaning about the fact that like, it's so hard to see when you're in the car. You don't know if you've crossed the line. Visibility is really poor in these things. Dude, that's what you get paid $40 million to do is to know where the line is, even when it's hard. So I, like, I'm sorry. And maybe it's just about like, if the FIA is going to do this as a more regular practice, the drivers are just going to have to get used to it. I'm generally not offended by how active the FIA was with the track limits in particular as long as they're consistent. That's to me, the main, the most important criteria is that they're consistent. And other than the Perez thing, which was this weird anomaly where they weren't able to make the call in real time. And then it had consequences for other drivers and kind of led to a weird qualifying. Other than that, I'm kind of okay with it, to be honest with you. what do you think? 
Yeah, I, I think this track in particular is set up to be prone to a lot of that, particularly like around the six, seven, or I guess seven, eight, I'm not sure, S curve, and then yeah. into the, the nine, two. eight point. Um, like, I, I think the the time to be gained on the nine, 10 kind of closing section isn't a lot. I do think there's more in the middle section if you can kind of straighten out that S curve. But I mean, and that's also where you can violate that's Perez, right? Yeah, that's the one that got Perez, which that one is far more obvious and extreme. I mean, he missed it by six inches. The ones on nine and 10 in many cases were millimeters off. And so it it does seem excessive, um, but I just don't know what the alternative is, right? Last year, they had specific corners they would call out for infractions. But I, I think to your point, at a certain point, you have to have a standard and what do you what else do you expect the the rules to be the drivers should be able to keep the car within the limits the whole again the excuses of they can't see around the car you can certainly see it wheel to wheel when you're two inches away from another driver it seems surprising that you're unfamiliar with where the line is at maybe that's because it's on the pavement it's situated on the ground below eye limit so like maybe understandable but again, as soon as you open the door to, well, it's got to be more than an inch outside of line. Well, then just move the line out an inch at that point. So it, you got to have a line somewhere. Yeah, I think it was fair. I agree. As, as as annoying as it was from like a race experience, watching the race and then wondering about, you know, the penalties they're going to dole out or not. Um, I do just wish in qualifying that one was so obvious. Like catch that in qualifying. And and at worst, I think Perez should have been bumped to P10. I don't know that he should have been bumped into a position in Q2 when they didn't catch it during that time, right? Yeah. So ideally they catch it sooner and Gasly gets to participate in in qualifying. So uh, yeah, that that was primarily my issue with it. So it sounds like we largely agree on track limits, which I think is the primary issue for the FIA, but this other stuff, the... 20 Seb Sebastian Vettel literally got fined $25,000 for walking out of the driver's briefing because apparently after 30 minutes they had just spun in circles around this that or the other and he was like I'm done with this shit and just walked out and then Leclerc Verstappen and Hamilton all got fined $5,000 each because apparently their interactions with their physio in Park Ferme were in violation of the rules for what you can and can't do before you get weighed which to me it's like I mean, are you guys just trying to meet like a fine quota? Like why? I mean, that stuff's not happening every week. So why Austria? Yeah, I guess they got, uh, I guess they got their own budget cap in the regulations and they're trying to fill their pockets behind the scenes. Yeah. I I don't know. This is where it gets out of control for me. The track limits crashes are one thing, but to me, this is akin to needing to wear fireproof underwear and take off your jewelry. Like at a certain point, the guy walks out of a meeting. Fine. Like, and the weighing thing, I mean, I'm sure there's some sort of scientific reason for fairness and all of this, but I mean, really, what are they doing? Taking the waiters out of their pants before they jump on the scale? Like, wh- what is happening here that we're so worried about? And and again, it just feels like they're, they're trying to lean in too firm. They've seen some things slip through the cracks before, and these are things we need to enforce. But I'd have to wonder, if they weren't enforced and nothing happened, was the rule necessary or was it arbitrary to begin with? What was the 
the urgency of Vettel being in there and the and the damage that was caused by him leaving early. Uh, it just seems like they're on such a tight leash on some things. The weighing one is a bit more of a gray area for me, but particularly, I guess the, the fault I have with the weighing is, I think somebody made an interesting comment of the scales and the timing actually being different on different tracks at different times, potentially. And I haven't noticed this myself. However, I do think I saw a scale in the cool down room, but are those things happening in different places rather than consistently immediately outside of sort of the, the podium where they pick up their watches and and do their post-race interviews is where I've seen it typically. But if that's not consistent, I mean, I think that's especially bullshit. Like, yeah, I'm not going to wait 15 minutes to, I don't know what they need to do at that point, get some sort of electrolytes or what, but it's a great point. It's definitely not consistent because the other place I've noticed them doing it commonly is in like the garage on their way to the cool down room. Right. So basically like the most you can do before you get weighed is essentially go celebrate with your engineers, you know, and do the classic, like jumping into the, like the pile type thing after you get out of your car. But then after that, it's basically like, okay, you have a little place to like take your helmet off and we'll give you a towel, but you basically hop straight on the scale after that. Yeah, you're right. You've seen it by the by the watch podiums immediately yep. after. You see it in the garage and then seen it even in the, the cool down room. So um, and also if they're so worried about the physios interacting with them, but not when they're jumping with all of their like fellow team members. What's the distinction here? Yeah, if, you, if you're if you're worried about teams like adding or removing weight from a driver to try and cheat the way in like then you should be super strict about it and say that they can't touch anybody, which clearly is not the rule. So to your point, is it actually making a difference or mitigating a risk in the first place on that one? I would say probably not. So like, like what are they worried about? They're slipping like a little 10 pounder in the jumpsuit. And (laughs) yeah, I mean, well, look, I'm sure in the history of F1, crazier things have been tried to cheat the weight rules, you know, but it's still like, you got to have some threshold of reasonableness, you know? I don't know. I was always suspicious of Angela. Now I see. <laughs> Wouldn't that be huge if Angela got caught up in a massive like scale cheating scandal? <laughs> All this year, that decades later, already. she's putting sandbags in Hamilton's <laughs> pants. She's now she's only rivaled by like Lance Armstrong's trainer in terms of like <laughs> the length and depth of the scandal. Yeah. First, there was the doping scandal, then the weigh-in scandal. <laughs> what is next? Um, all right, so let look. FIA, they've been lots of praise, lots of negatives. I think they're still finding their footing in the new regime. Sure. Give them a little bit of bit of credit. I'm hopefully some of this scrutiny falls a bit more by the by the wayside. Uh, All right. Last, we got to talk about it because there's only so few in the season and I feel a constant need to voice my displeasure. Um, But I'll, I'll let you share your perspective first. Sprint races, yay or nay. And, um, any better alternatives than, than what we have in place now? Oh, this is so hard. I'm really on the fence about this one. Uh, the cons for me are the fact that like, I had no shot in hell of watching qualifying on Friday. Like, or if I had it on my iPad while I was working from home, like I was half paying attention, but I wasn't actually able to engage with it. So, and I really dislike that because I think qualifying and like, competing for single lap time is really interesting. Uh, And so I really hate the fact that that has been diminished really clearly on sprint weekends. On the pro side, though, 
Like what happened with Perez, which was basically the sprint race was a chance at redemption and to come through the field and give yourself a better position for the race. I actually kind of like that uh, to some degree. But I say that with a grain of salt because maybe I only like it because it suited the driver that I cheer for in this particular instance. So I don't really know. Net-net, I'm probably slightly negative on the sprint races, but I also kind of see them as inevitability because I know what F1's trying to do with them. And they've already rolled up the, out more of them in F2. So I think it's kind of coming, but I don't know. I, I want to hear the more pessimistic view, and I'm willing to be influenced. Well, the pessimistic view is... Yes, one, it absolutely dilutes the importance of qualifying, which if you look at the course of a season, it is the ability of a driver to qualify, not even first or second, but the difference of, as we saw in Hamilton's season, right? The difference between eighth and fourth is massive in in terms of what it means for potential risk on an open lap, the amount of, well, that mainly, right? How much conflict do you potentially engage in in that position versus further up the grid is massive. Um, So it dilutes the importance of qualifying, which I think is what truly differentiates the greatest of the drivers. And I think honestly, as I think about it more, I I think the sprint races only advantage the better teams, which I, which I find to be the most frustrating part because, well, one of the most frustrating parts, I I think you see a, a great team outperform on a, in a qualifying session, or you see particular teams like Mercedes this week make mistakes in qualifying, Perez making mistakes in qualifying, and you get bailed out by having a sprint race. You get to make up most of, if not all of the positions that you that you lost as a result of that qualifying performance, and then the race is no different. And And so, and then to that point, I do think it robs the actual race of the excitement it's entitled to the full extent of the, the, the Schumacher and Hamilton battle, the, the full effort from Perez having to climb up the field. Saturday was far flatter of a race than Saturday. And, and you mean so sun, Sunday was flatter. Of a race. Yes. I'm sorry. Sunday was almost like by the end, by the time the race ended, I had almost forgotten like what really happened in the race because short of, you know, a couple of really interesting battles and signs is, you know, Perez and Russell's contact signs going on fire. And then just ultimately Leclerc making the pass. Like you kind of forget what ha- all the details of the race, because one, not as much stuff happened. And two, I think it was largely overshadowed by a lot of the interesting drama that comes up with a mixed grid as a result of the uncertainties in qualifying. And so Sunday is just greatly diluted. I also, to your point of not being able to watch qualifying on Friday, it makes for an extremely long weekend. I mean, it almost by the end of it, you're like, is this thing over yet? Because I have like had three days of things to tune into. Whereas typically when you're watching practices on Friday and, and early on Saturday, those are things that you can either like turn on in the background or turn on at 6am for the last hour of sleep on a Saturday morning, but it just felt like it it feels a bit overwhelming with major features three days of the week. But I think the biggest thing for me is the, the disadvantage that it puts teams further down the grid who might've made great strides in qualifying. Um, And I think it also disadvantages potentially teams who 
get it right early in with one practice session and and sort of bails out other driver other teams who you know may struggle so yeah i i'm still not a fan but unfortunately i think they're here to say to some extent but i certainly hope it doesn't expand beyond the you know three races a year that we're we're set for i think it's I think it's definitely going to. I think the question is, is it going to be every race? Hopefully the answer is no. Maybe they'll stop at half. I don't know. Um, but it's a moneymaker, right? So I get what they're doing. Um, my utopia would be, if you have to have a sprint race, do it all on Saturday. Just shorten regular qualifying. Maybe have it in two sessions instead of three. And then do the sprint race immediately. Kind of after, with like some degree of a break. Maybe do like a uh, you know, a lower formula race in between them and make like a whole thing. I don't know. I don't know all the other factors at play in scheduling, but it's to me, the main issue is just, I, I, I have a hard time giving a shit on a Friday unless I'm either at the venue, which I'm usually not, or the race is on East coast time. And it's after business hours on Friday, which it generally isn't. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So what about some of the other alternatives that have been thrown out though, of, you know, reverse grid, for example, qualifying just counting for both the start of sprint and and the race but not having the sprint determine the order for the race any thoughts on those uh the second one to me has a lot more potential i think reverse grids are just manufactured excitement and that would just be like you know getting a delicious pot of black coffee and then pouring like a pound of stevia in it it's just like totally fake and just complete (laughs) Bullshit. I've heard a couple drivers respond to the fake, the reverse grid idea, and they're just like, do you like it's absurd? I think it's so stupid. The notion of the sprint race being purely for points and not having a bearing on grid order, to me, it does kind of reinvigorate normal qualifying, which I think would be a net positive. Uh, but then you might get to a point where people, depending on the number of points at play in the sprint race, may not really care as much. So it's tough balance to strike. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think it would be an improvement. I think it would detract from the, like you said, the urgency that people have on the sprint race. Um, but again, why not put, why not go for the points if you're going to be starting further back tomorrow again anyway? Yeah, and look, we can sit here and, you know, complain about all we want, but at the end of the day, I also watched every bit of that sprint race and it was damn entertaining. I mean, it was. It was really exciting. Um, and I, 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 you know, your point about it taking away from Sunday, I hear you, but I still think Sunday was actually pretty damn entertaining. And I don't think it takes as much away from Sunday as it does from from Friday, but point, point, point heard. All right. Well, turning from the past of F1 to its future, uh, I know you were, were knee deep in F2 this weekend. Uh Hot off the heels of a of a second Logan Sargent win in a row, uh, give us a breakdown because from from what I understand, it was a an exciting turn of events in the race. So first off, let me just say, this weekend was the inflection point for me. I don't know if I have any more personal time to devote to racing, and if I give it any more attention, Aaron is probably going to kill me. But I need to start watching F two because some shit went down in Austria in the F2 race, and I don't think anyone noticed. Uh, Logan Sargent won his second race in a row in F2, and he did it after finishing third on the track. He was the third person across the finish line, and then he won the race. 
Because first, who was I don't I'm gonna get these pronunciations totally wrong because there's a lot of European Eastern Europeans in F2, as it turns out. But uh Richard Versor Verscore. I'm not gonna help you don't here. Even, I would prefer yeah, to sorry. You, anyway. listen to you struggle over these. Ran away with the race and then failed the fuel. Uh, the fuel regulation at the end, similar to how Aston and Seb weren't able to produce a liter of fuel. So he gets bumped. And then uh, Dervala, who was second on the grid, gets promoted. And and then, similar to the Perez penalty, you thought the FIA was active in the F1 race. Dude, they were all over the F2 race. He gets a 20-second penalty after the race has already concluded for... And I quote, attempting to alter the grip the grip of the track surface at their grid position prior to the race start. A, pen- a 20 second penalty applied after the race is over, and he's now been named the winner for something he did on the starting grid, which is absurd. So he gets a 20 second penalty, goes from second, this is also insane, second to 12th with a 20 second penalty. He went that far down the grid, which is indicative of how close F2 racing is, which is also insane. And so who is waiting in the wings with the bronze medal already around his neck, but Logan Sargent? And keep in mind, this is after the podium ceremony has already happened. Logan Sargent gets credit and full points for winning that race after he sat on the third step of the podium, walks away with a full points haul, and is now second and the F2 driver standings, which we'll get into the whole thing about how how well has an American ever done in F2. He's killing it right now. But just the circumstances. Can you imagine, Gerald, if that had happened in the F1 race? F1 Twitter would have broken. Like, crazy to me. So a couple follow-up questions. What was the, what was the actual, like, the action that he took, presumably to alter the track surface? And two, why did they not know this sometime in advance of the end of the race again timely penalties i don't have an answer to the second question but the first question and i haven't seen the video but what i imagine was he did something to basically burn rubber and lay it down on his starting box so he would have better grip at the start of the race but i actually noticed and i completely unrelated to f2 i actually noticed and brundle called it out on the broadcast guys do that in the F1 race at the start of the formation lap. Their teams leave them parked further back in the box so they have like five to ten feet to spin out over the box as they start the formation lap and actually lay rubber down on it when they come back around and get set for the starting line. To me, that, like, I I didn't, again, I didn't see the replay of what Daruvala did at the start of the race, but, like, all right, it's what else could you? It's, it's Daruvala. I got to jump D- in. Daruvala. Whatever. You're like, I can't hear you say that any yeah. anymore. I thought I could do it with it. it was like a subtle mistake, but this, this is abhorrent. Dur- <laughs> yeah, what, what Voldemort did. In that, was a, that was definitely a Southern interpretation. The Daruvala. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, IQ just got knocked about 20 points. Uh, <laughs> you definitely should watch maybe one but, or two more races. But, but it was. <laughs> But, like, yeah, I mean, but regardless of, like, how, I don't know how egregious he did was or not. Again, I didn't watch the video, but the fact that they didn't penalize him until after the podium ceremony for something he did on the Stark grid is insanity. Absolute insanity. A little understaffed for the F2 race, I think. Not enough volunteers. Probably so. Um, 
couple comments on Logan Sargent because I am I you know I've said a lot about Colton Herta on this podcast. I'm we're both very enthusiastic about the potential of a young American driver in F1. I am officially on the Logan Sargent hype train. Uh, he has a real statistical chance to win F2, and since Imola, he is the best driver in F2. And he's done it with a combination of qualifying pace and real racecraft. Uh, and I think he has a real chance, if he can challenge Drogovic and really compete at the top of F2 to put his name in the ring 2023 is a little bit harder to imagine, but 2024 for sure, and maybe to be the next American on the grid. Um, and there is no denying that F2 is an easier stepping stone into Formula One than IndyCar. And if he finishes, the the best finisher that we've ever had from America in F2, which is formerly called GP2, was Scott Speed, who I didn't even know existed, but what a name for a racer. In the early 2000s, finished third in GP2. Alexander Rossi was like eighth or ninth in 2015 or 2013. He's the last guy to race, last American to race in F1. Logan Sargent is already in uncharted territory by the fact that he's in second, winning races this consistently, and, and challenging for the first spot. If he wins F2, that will be unprecedented for an American driver, and I think we should be talking more about that um, and cheering it as, as promoters of Americans in the sport. So. A little public service announcement there at the end. <laughs> yeah, sorry. No, I'm I think excited. it's look. I think in this race, obviously, a little bit more credit than he's due, right? To get first, what well, when really finishing third, but I mean, he still finished ahead of Drogovic, so I mean, he's in a good position yeah. with still a handful of races left to go. I think six races, um, six races or so left. So, uh, yeah, it would definitely be interesting. So you think? Do you think he just hasn't been on the radar enough to be really a a contender for next year and and you need to see another year in the system? Because, I mean, the way it's shaking out, it's looking more and more like there could very well be three spots on the grid opening up between Latifi, Ricardo, and now whispers as well of, you know, Vettel laying hints of if he's still sitting at the back of the grid every weekend, he's, why is he going to keep doing it? Well, and four if Aston Martin sells and Stroll's gone. I mean, you know, you never know. True. So, but yeah, three plus and and what? You probably have DeVries and and Piastri locked in on two of those. They're shoe-ins for sure. Yeah. I think for Logan Sargent to have a chance, you would need more than two spots to open, which is not a guarantee. And even in that scenario... I don't know. I, let me paint this hypothetical. If he wins F2, which, to your point, six races out, he's 39 points back. Like, it's possible. I wouldn't say it's probable, but it's possible. Then I think, you know, outside of the McLaren driver development program, which has Colton Herta and Alexander Rossi has some relationships there, I think he's got the best shot of grabbing a seat at a Williams um, or a Haas. Because... On paper, he's the most credentialed young American to get excited about. Um, you know, if Piastri goes and takes Latifi's seat, which seems to be in the cards, because apparently Alpine and Williams have this engine deal behind the scenes that might be getting announced, and it could come with a driver kind of swap. 
Well, Piastri is also reserved for for McLaren as well. So the whole where DeVries actually goes versus Piastri is like a very interesting dynamic. I think you oh, can... I, I didn't realize he was a test driver for McLaren too. I thought he was just signed with Alpine. I thought he reserve, was in Alpine's believe, driver yeah, reserve program. for them as well. So I think it's oh. it's a bit of a mystery as to who, which one of those guys goes where and, and why. Um, yeah, it, interesting to maybe pick through the politics of whose influence really matters in that case. But in either one, I think both of those drivers are set for those two spots. Well, if Sargent finds a way to win F2 or even just push Drogovic and compete, he's picked a perfect timing to do it because no one's ever been... F1's never been this excited about an American driver and is looking is almost looking for an excuse at this point. So I think it would be relatively hard to deny him if if he if he did finish that high at at latest in 2024. And this is one of those weird dynamics with F2 where as you win you're expected to to graduate out and it's like he's he's trailing right now if he can make a late season push close the gap fall just short to your point if it isn't this year or if it isn't next year I'm sorry you know he's got another season in F2 to quote unquote dominate or or get a better start and and show sort of that consistency yeah, he, he sets himself up in a pretty good position as long as he stays off the, the streaming websites and, and keeps his mic on mute. I think he might be good. Yeah, well, the other thing is Drogovic has been in F2 for three years. So he's he's also, if he catches him, he'll have, as a first-year F2 driver, like, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty good mark on somebody who's got a lot more races under him than you do. So Yeah, if you even hang back three, five points at the end, you're, I mean, that's a good a good mark for you. So, yeah. Anyway, thanks for thanks for letting me give him some some air time. I'm no, no, absolutely. I know how important this is to you and, and how personally you feel uh, as an American ambassador. So I want to make sure you had the the floor for that. Um, all right, Graham, we've been we've been working our way through some some weighty topics here. Should we should we give the teams their due here? Finally, let's do it, man. All right. Um, well. Maybe not these first two. I don't know that we need to spend that long on these. But uh, <laughs> starting again from the back of the grid, uh, Williams. I mean, we'll make this quick. Albon made it into Q2. Congrats. Latifi retired from the race. Uh, and at least in F1's official standings on their website, he has now surpassed Hulkenberg and is no longer in last place in the World Drivers <laughs> Championship. So congrats, Latifi. Moving up the order. Uh, that's about all there is to say for them. We can move it along to Aston well, Martin. Oh, you I, have I something more one, to add. One, wow. Yes. Please. I have just a brief comment on Williams. Okay. Which is somewhat positive. Remember last week we kind of said based on what happened to Albon, they didn't really get a chance to test the new car, the new yes. upgrades they gave yes. him. I don't want to say they made a slam dunk, but he was clearly faster and had more pace. So I think, some of the upgrades they pushed to him were somewhat validated and was at least a partial step forward. So if you're a, a diehard Williams fan, you can at least feel decent about that. Aston Martin. <laughs> um, both drivers qualified and finished the race in the bottom five. Vettel, uh, unfortunately, making contact with Gasly on turn four. Uh, and that that hampered his race quite a bit, but still little to nothing impressive or notable to, to reference in their race, but anything catch your eye this weekend. Now, uh, co- coolest thing that happened to Aston was 
Vettel walking out of the driver's briefing, which we already talked about, which I think is pretty badass. But uh, nothing memorable on the track. Um, continues to be a very sad season for them. So, Well, I mean, and I guess it, since we're on the Vettel note, uh, adding insult to injury after a bad weekend gets penalized with exceeding track limits, I believe, on the last lap of the race. So uh, no, that, I wasn't enough. See that. <laughs> that wasn't enough. Oh, just God. one more. Just twist the knife a bit more. Um, and with that, let's turn to AlphaTauri. So looked like a potentially promising weekend for them. Gasly qualifying 10th, Sonoda a bit further off pace in 14th, but finished even further down the grid in 15th and 16th, despite multiple DNFs. Gasly, he really pulled a Russell this weekend uh, and turning in on Hamilton on the on the start straight. I'm going to make that a thing now. That's a that's now called a, a Russell or more. I guess it's really more aptly pulling a stroll definition <laughs> when one turns without looking in their mirror whatsoever. Without checking mirrors. <laughs> um, but it feels more it feels more funny to say it's a Russell, but um, made first lap contact in the sprint race um, and then in the race making contact with Vettel. So while Sonoda just had sort of weak pace throughout Gasly making several significant mistakes and continuing a quite a streak here of some questionable performance, which leads me to believe, you know, a lot of a lot of comments made and, and even made it into the 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 pre-race press conferences of Sonoda getting a, a a sports therapist thinking through, you know, how to manage his emotions throughout the race. But I have to wonder, is does Gasly need the sports therapist at this point more than Sonoda? I was going to say, I hope that therapist does group sessions because <laughs> Gasly's been been pretty crashy this year. There's no denying that. Um, the car is not working. It's just bad on top of bad, man, for them. Um, I guess the silver lining, if there is one, at least for Gasly, is that his seat is pretty damn secure. I think in spite of having a pretty unfortunate year, his seat is probably as secure as any underperformers could be in Formula One right now. Um, so... You know. Well, there really hasn't been any whispers of either driver being on the bubble this season. While Sonoda has some high points, or I guess low points here or there. I think for Sonoda, it's more of a byproduct of the fact that there's not really any good young drivers in the Red Bull development program to replace them with. Because if anything... I mean, it's going to be the, Albon, if anything. But I don't know that this season was enough of a telltale to pull him back in a seat. He probably, you know, they, they're probably going to stretch that a bit longer, at least another season or two. I don't think they'll pull him back onto the lower team either. I think they would leave him at Williams and then pull him onto the front team to replace Perez, if anything. But I I think, if anything, Sonoda, like the separation of Honda and the death of the Honda and Red Bull relationship would also be working against him in terms of retaining his seat. So I wouldn't say he's on the hot seat, but like... I mean, he's not in a great spot either way, right? Right, but agreed. The, there's been no rumors of that, so... Um, and then I guess last question, has AlphaTauri taken a bigger step back this year than any other team on the grid? I mean, again, I think we've talked about this before, but it just seemed like this weekend uh, validated this again from having Gasly Q1, every qualifying, qualifying and finishing and five, six, seventh place consistently throughout the season to now they're not even getting into Q1 track limits aside i think them and mclaren are probably tied (laughs) 
Well, at least McLaren's, I mean, McLaren's up the grid. I think McLaren's more of a driver issue rather than a yeah, team car issue, right? That's that's fair. I guess in terms of like struggling in all phases, AlphaTauri has taken the biggest step back. I think yeah. that's fair. Which interestingly, despite having two solid, solid drivers. So yeah, it's, it is surprising again. I think you said this last week, given where Red Bull is at and where they are, the golf, it seemed like they were pulled at, pulled forward with Red Bull last year and their progress, but that correlation has not held true this year. So uh, tough times for those guys. Um, all right, let's turn it now to uh, really the the center of attention, the star attraction, seventh so in, ain't so. in Constructors Championship now, but rocketing up the grid. It is the the high the heist, the heist, the Haas team. Uh, for a second, America's week, darling, America's darling, double points finish two drivers in the top 10 for the second week in a row. You had Mick in sixth, get picking up eight points in the race. Magnuson in eighth, picking up four, 12 points on total, taking them ahead of Alpha Tari, uh, just 47 points off of McLaren up in fourth place. So again, while, while seemingly a large number, 50 points to fourth. Pretty, pretty close across the grid. Um, let's start with really the probably the most talked about aspect of the team this weekend. Mick Schumacher getting some wheel to wheel action with Perez, with Hamilton. How would you rate his quality of racing this weekend? Well, before I go to Mick Schumacher, I will say we've harped on many times the ridiculousness of my Haas and fourth in the constructors take at the beginning of the year. I'm not doubling down on it because I still think it's relatively unlikely. Sixth is definitely in the cards. They can definitely beat Alfa Romeo. And I don't think it's unfathomable that they can beat one of McLaren or Alpine. If Mick continues well, you know to know where surge. my money's on, the, on, on that bet then. Yeah, McLaren's the more likely loser between those two. But I'm not willing to like bet on that. But anyway, love to see it. On the Schumacher question... Um, I like him getting his elbows out on a couple things. One, on track, defending Lewis. Now, given he is not going to have nearly as much opportunity to defend if he's not getting DRS from Kevin Magnuson. So, like, you know, take that with a grain of salt. But also, like, getting a little chippy in a post-race interview. Like, I I know you're going to roll your eyes at this, but, like, the dude knows he's fighting for his F1 life. He had his first weekend where he said to himself, I've been consistent. I know that I've got better race pace than Kevin, and I want to see it manifest in the order on the track, and God dang it, let me through. So sue him, Gerald. Like, I'm a little (laughs) bit sympathetic to his position. He knows he's fighting for his life. He's hungry. A lot of people want him to succeed. I was happy to see it. Agreed on the racing portion. Could not disagree more with the with the post was it post sprint interview post, post I mean, he's sprint, already, yeah. yeah already like angry at team orders you know didn't get let by is very frustrated something we really got to talk about it's like dude you just got here you know it was like this is what is this your first race of the year where you've had something of note like come on man give it you know let's get a little bit more consistency a little bit more back-to-back solid performances now look i guess if you are to be an objective team, it really should come down to race by race. Who has the pace? Let them buy. But, and if that's, if that's true, then fine, have that conversation. But again, I'm critical of the, 
the drivers hot out of the gate. I was critical of Russell in his first podium, sort of taking on the mantle of world's greatest driver and, and sort of the big head that inflated immediately after that. And I think you saw that with Mick just even more depressingly. So knowing that it was happening, you know, seventh and eighth place on the grid rather than the podium position, but a little bit more patience and humility, I think would have been nice rather than his aggression at the literal first moment that he's had a glimmer of success. Like I I think, Yes, while he probably feels under a significant amount of pressure, the things that he has done over the last two races are literally more than he needs to do to keep his seat. And so I think he just needs to strike that right balance of aggression on the track and maturity and humility off of it. Fuck that, dude. You're trying to keep a tiger in a cage, man. I like a little fight. I like a little fire in the belly. I'm not sure he's I, a. I'm not sure he's a tiger yet, my friend. He's he still not. looks a bit like a house he's cat. So a, he's, until... a, he's the son. He's the son of a tiger who's still a little bit of a house cat, but he's trying to get there. And if anything, he was in danger of being criticized and accused for being like the neighborhood nice guy. And no F1 driver wants to be the neighborhood nice guy, and he wants to show that he's got some teeth. And so I commend him for it. That's all. Again, I think you could still be the nice guy, but be aggressive on track if that's his thing. I don't know that he was... See, if he if this was like a contrived overreaction to criticism about his persona, that's one thing. If it was a genuine, like, the the glimmers of real Mick shining through at, at first crack, uh, I, I'd was be a bit wrong? more concerned. Was he wrong about his pace? Was he wrong? I don't know. He didn't hang... I mean, Magnuson eventually pulled further away in the sprint race. Yeah, but what happened on Sunday? Yeah, sure. But I mean, I think the, what we're talking about was primarily Schumacher's reaction to Saturday, right? Yeah, but I'm just, his his reaction wasn't specific to the sprint race. His reaction was the general view that he had better race pace than Magnuson, which manifest on Sunday. So I guess I'm saying in, in the totality of the weekend, he was not wrong. And so I, that makes me even more sympathetic to his frustration that he at least wasn't misguided even in light of like objective data about his relative performance to his teammate. At least he was right about that. I guess I'd just like to see maybe one more data point That's before fair. he getting hot under the collar about getting team orders. I don't know. Maybe just one more, one more data point. I mean, I think we have what two at this point, we have one wet qualifying and one and a good Sunday. Agreed. If he goes back to binning it for the next three or four races into the wall, like, no, I agree. Like, That's this what I'm saying. I'm the... still taking his full data set into account, I guess. Yeah. The book's not closed, but I also recognize that his future success in additional races is highly correlated with his confidence continuing to build. And I'm open to him doing whatever the hell so he needs along to for do that ride. To, continue, to continue to grow the confidence. And if it means that he needs to get a little bit more bark and a little bit more bite, even in front of the microphone, I'm all for it, man. Like, go become a man. Like, that's, that's what I'm here for. That's what you're going to need to do if you want to start performing more consistently. You know, maybe maybe he takes his tender-voiced race engineer in the middle of the race one of these days. He tells him to go fuck himself. I would love to hear that. I'd love to see a little bite out of Mick, you know? Right, There's so some you're... guys we get too much we get too much bite and we resent him for it, like Max and like Sonoda. But Mick is a guy where you're like, give me more. I need a little bit more. So it made me happy. All right, so you need the, the young tiger cub. You're okay for a little more roar test out his roar all right how about that um the drs strategy obviously went in in mixed favor for several laps holding hamilton at bay 
But do you think the team did enough to to sustain that strategy throughout the sprint race and and give Mick a bit of a better chance for holding Hamilton up? Because basically, as soon as Magnuson pulled a, out by a second, um, he was pretty much done. Look, in the totality of the weekend, it was a drop in the bucket. Hamilton was getting through both cars either way. That wasn't their race. And so I get mixed complaint and I can see why you're like, well, maybe they could have held on to both positions if Magnuson had just continued to give him DRS. But like, come on, man, at the, we're kind of pinching pennies. Like, I, I like the savviness of having teammates collaborate on track to that degree. I like when the team aspect of F1 gets highlighted even more than just kind of the individual components of it because often the latter is overweighted. And so I love the sav- – like, I loved last year in Abu Dhabi that they used Perez to back up Hamilton to get Max closer to him. I like team tactics. I think it adds another dynamic to the sport that's badly needed. Um, but also, how how many laps can you reasonably expect that to work? I think they got it to work for, what, three or four laps? It just seemed um, – well, I think it was more than that but it, because it just seemed so effective. And maybe I'm wrong, but it just seemed so effective – like, oh, why wouldn't sure. you continue to play it out? I guess that you're right. I was enjoying it so much that I wasn't ready for it to to end. But, um, you know, as all good things. Hamilton was in his diffuser, like, entire laps. Yeah. Again, testament to car design. You didn't see that happen in the past. Like, Well, and it was great to see Mick actually, like, take the inside line and, and not pull a Norris and just say, well, this isn't our race. Like, let's just waving by, you know? So, uh, props to, props to Mick. Can we skip alpha? I don't feel like I have a lot to say. I, I think alpha would like us to skip alpha as well. I mean, all right. Poor and qualifying rough days in the race. Um, you've said too much. Yeah. All right. Moving on. Um, let's go to Alpine though, because upon, well, they haven't quite cleared them yet, but on my prediction of, and I'll be at a mid-season prediction. All right. But <laughs> Al- Alpine now neck and neck, 81 points even with McLaren, which I don't know if that's a testament to Alpine or it's a testament to Norris for single-handedly fending off an entire team by himself. But they were the second of three teams with two cars to finish in the points, fifth for Ocon, 10th for Alonso, picking up 11 points in the race total. So that's not counting the sprint race. Uh, but Ocon now just 12 points behind Norris in the, the driver's championship and Alonzo good performance after uh, a rough start in the sprint race. Couldn't get the car to start, had to start from the back of the grid stuck in a DRS train early, but ultimately through sprint through the race uh, climbing up to 10th place. So I guess pr- one prediction I've already made mine when it comes to the team order, but how about drivers Norris or Ocon in the world driver championship? Who's your money on? <laughs> I guess I shouldn't even be take... asking you. It's not a question for you given your Ocon hate. No, look, I'll answer that in a different way by stating, think about how much further Alpine would be ahead of McLaren right now. If Alonzo literally wasn't just getting fucked by the racing gods every single week. I, I fully agree. It wouldn't even be close. It wouldn't even be close. So I think eventually, hopefully that comes back to them and they get the car underneath them a little bit better and more consistently and they'll start putting McLaren in the rearview mirror where they should be relative to how well that Alpine is built. Um, 
Yeah, look, in terms of like quality of driver, I'm never going to put Ocon and Lando Norris in the same stratosphere. And I r- lament the fact that Ocon is even where he is in the drivers relative to Alonzo because when Alonzo has like a normal weekend, which is literally never, he, he, he blows Ocon away. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm not here. He blows him away. There's a lot of times where they've been awfully close by the end of a weekend, by a spot or two. So I'm not saying he's getting blown away. There have been at least two times in qualifying this year, maybe even three. Canada was definitely one. Agreed. Uh, There has been some some challenging qualifying performances by Ocon. But but, but where you said to yourself, Alonso could put this shit on pole. Australia, and and then just something unlucky happens, and the car just breaks. When have you ever said that about Ocon? Look, the, the 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 prediction the ask was not to tell me who I think is better between Alonzo and Ocon and whether or not even Alonzo is gonna close the gap to Ocon. But I think when you well, take you're the, asking me you're asking you have me to take to, the car into account as well as the driver, and right now I'm not sold on certainly not the car, but yes, while Lando has been relatively consistent, the Alpine looks damn good. And if Ocon can continue to string together some good performances. He's got a chance here to to sit at seventh, which I don't think anyone would have predicted at the beginning of the season. And unlike a lot of the drivers, he just sort of drifts by, you know, below the radar. I mean, I don't know that he got a hardly a single mention throughout the entire weekend. But good, keep it that way. <laughs> I I guess what I'm saying is, you're asking me to to compare and contrast Ocon against the number one driver in another team, and I'm struggling to do that because I don't believe Ocon's even the number one driver on his own team. So I'm kind of categorically denying the premise of your question on that basis. And yet he's 12 points off of Norris. So, I mean, he must have a damn good car then. Or just has gotten the dice to bounce and roll in his direction more times than Alonzo. Oh, so now it's the dice. I guess the dice has just bounced in his direction his whole life, huh, Graham? Uh, If you want to, dude, if you want to plant your flag in Team Ocon, you go right on ahead. You sit back, you (laughs) eat your freaking baguettes and croissants and, you know, lift your finger at everyone. Douchebag. Well, (laughs) <laughs> well, let's let's turn it from France to Spain. Uh, speaking of Alonzo, has anyone had worse luck this year than Alonzo? Definitely not. And honestly, it's he's at the bottom of that barrel, and Signs is like, I don't know what's happening with Spanish drivers this year, but it is like noticeable. Uh, I, I, it's just, I mean, he gets it close to put it on pole and qualifying. He has a hydraulic issue. He gets a decent starting grid position. He gets to the grid. He can't get the car started. Like, it's just the engine's blowing up. He's probably going to start getting grid penalties on the basis of reliability and cycling through power unit pieces later in the year. I mean, the guy just can't catch a break. And you can hear it in his voice every time he has a press conference because he knows he's got good form and he knows the car suits him better. And he's still really racy and arguably has better racecraft than anyone on the grid. And he just can't do anything with it. And it has nothing to do with him. And it sucks. I I it it hurt it like hurts me to watch every like every week like clockwork. He's also got to be one of the best characters on the grid still, and I think he always was. So the the age and and experience is no excuse. But I think one of the the highlights of the entire weekend, and this might have been a universal opinion, was the um, on the heels of the Bonato and Leclerc finger wag, an even better finger wag happening mid race. While Sonoda, I can't believe we almost missed this. Sonoda nearly forcing Alonzo off the track on a straight, 
only to have Alonzo pull alongside him while going, you know, 250 miles an hour, um, or 250 kilometers an hour, rather, give him a finger wag for uh, some unsportsmanlike driving. So, um, yeah, you got to love that. Yeah, I love it. I love the old dog putting Sonoda in his place. So, I think Sonoda knew, too. I think there was uh, either some tweets or some messages afterward, like Sonoda acknowledging to the video of the finger wag, like, yes, that, that was my bad. So uh, he's keeping everybody in line. Good for him. All right, let's turn it to McLaren. I think we can spend about half the time on their team, given the fact that they really only have one driver at the moment worth talking about. Um, Norris finishing the weekend in seventh after qualifying 13th. Um, he started 11th after the sprint. And and again, now he he passed. We talked about that five-car battle earlier, and I, I since we're all about accountability here and, and recognizing when we're wrong, uh, I gave Norris some shit for his wheel la- wheel to wheel racing last week or the lack thereof this week had a five car battle and he made his way up from the four out of those five to the first after turn three and four. So, uh, probably one of the highlights of the entire weekend was that little skirmish and Norris made out better than the rest. So about as good of a performance as you expect from him, you know, Seventh in the points probably would have been nice to to see him a bit higher given signs and Perez both dropped out. But, um, you know, overall, good, uh, good weekend for for him. Um, all right, let's turn it to. Uh, well, I guess just quick question for you on Ricardo, given um, another horror show. Let's just review qualified 16th. Uh, and then finish the race, what I believe ninth, but on the heels of numerous DNFs throughout the, the race weekend. Uh, do you think his, his two points in the, uh, in the race this weekend saves his job at the end of the season or better yet, would you actually consider replacing Ricardo halfway through the season? I mean, I don't think his performance is justified. I think based on his performance alone, taking him out at the summer break would be justifiable. I don't think Zach Brown would have a hard time rationalizing that. Um, but I think you have to look at it objectively and say, who do we replace him with? The likely answer is a young emerging driver. And you got to really be realistic and say, what are the chances I could throw somebody into a, an already underperforming car? in the midseason and have them perform better on a relative basis. I think the answer, if you're looking at a young developing driver is probably like not worth it. Right. Uh, and so the alternative is go get a guy like Hulkenberg and throw him in the car and just hope he does better than Ricardo. But then it's like, all right, well, what are you really gaining? So I don't think that it would be that much of a stretch, but I also don't know that they would actually net net gain anything from it in terms of total constructors points by the end of the year. So they're better off just kind of waiting and doing a clean break in the off season. From the perspective of this season, I think you're right. From my perspective, it would be more of a play for the following season rather than having a young driver come in at the start of a new season. Why not use the lost second half of this season to start getting that driver comfortable with the car so that they can hit the ground running 
come the start of next season, especially as, you know, let's assume that the, the calendar is laid out in a similar manner as it was this year, a lot more approachable tracks and tracks that folks are going to be familiar with than some of the other ones that we've had at the front of the season, far more challenging when you look at Monaco, Monaco and Baku, um, the newness of Miami. So, you know, I, I think there's some benefit of bringing somebody in, especially if the, the calculus would be, do you think Ricardo's going to score you any points the rest of the season? If you don't see any meaningful points from him that are going to actually help you in the, the constructors championship, I don't know how that you have anything to lose other than maybe dollars towards the cost cap, but again, far less likely to, to face significant damage in the subsequent races that we have this season. And so look, if you have skepticism, Ricardo, I say you might as well get rid of him at this point and, and bring in, bring in Piastri if you know you have him for the following season as well. Yeah, I mean the only I, I see your that's a good point. I think the only risk therein is like, and it always is going to cut both ways. But there's definitely a risk of you bring a young driver into a car that already isn't working, and you wreck their confidence, you know. And you'd be better off waiting, you know, till you can put some more development in that car. But that's always going to be an unknown. So I see your point. I think I think I think it's well made. All right, let's bring it home here. Top three, um, real briefly on on Mercedes. I think we touched on it earlier though that they had a. Uh, a difficult weekend to start in qualifying. Uh, Hamilton made good progress through the sprint race and, and the race as a whole. Russell, solid weekend throughout, but unfortunate. First rate lap contact with Perez sent him into the pits relatively early for a wing change and a five second penalty. And that sent him to the back of the grid, but, and he spent the rest of the time climbing back up. Uh, but ultimately, the third team to with, with two drivers in the points, scoring 27 points overall uh, in the race. So race alone closed the gap a bit to Ferrari as well as Red Bull, kind of neutralized when you take the sprint race into consideration. A lot of positives overall, keeping pace with the leaders now. The car improvements seem to have helped maybe, but I guess the, the gray cloud to those silver lining is they still finished 40 seconds off the lead. Russell, you know, almost a minute. So, I mean, is it is it too soon for all of the positivity? Yeah. I mean, some of that was exaggerated by the fact that they started back further on the grid, and so they didn't have the opportunity to run in clean air earlier. So maybe, realistically, you could cut that in half if they had, uh, maybe even more. Um, the, I mean, look, at the end of the day, as has been said of – at various points in you know world history, these these Germans are proving to be some resilient bastards. Even when they get behind the eight ball and qualifying, man, they finish. They put two cars over the finish line better than any other team, and they are consistently scoring top fives now with both drivers. I agree with you. The car is not on the pace, and Ferrari somewhat surprisingly took a step forward and not necessarily a slight step back, as I might have expected them to this weekend relative to Red Bull. But Mercedes is doing everything they need to do to be waiting in the wings. I mean, how many points back are they in the constructors? Off, I mean, they just keep racking up points. It's um, yeah, two thirty-seven to Ferrari's three hundred three and Red Bull's three fifty-nine. So I mean, they're very much in the front group. Well, 40, 45 points behind Ferrari, but a couple more races where, um, I'm sorry, sixty-five points. Behind I was going to say what <laughs> sixty-five. You know, yeah. that's just some american math but still yeah 
a double DNF for points, Ferrari and you're back in it. Three, four right. races, a double DNF. Yeah. Which yeah, and Ferrari's proven they're very capable of that. <laughs> so, I, I mean, the one thing that stands out to me is they must have, they have probably the best, best sus- front suspension on the grid because two different instances this weekend contact with other cars, front tires, and they just keep rolling right along. So engine reliability, suspension reliability, uh, quite a solid piece of machinery they have um now question to that point is reliability really the only hope mercedes has to surpass ferrari come end of season i mean do you really see the performance gap closing enough for them to to beat ferrari on pace alone or do you think at this point you run the engines a little bit lower you you plan for fewer engine penalties i mean what's the what's the strategy dynamic here for them I think it's exactly what you just said, which is it's bigger than just reliability. It's get the performance gap small enough where then you can go out and beat Ferrari on strategy because Mercedes will because they're a better team. To your point, they'll plan for things like grid penalties. They'll make savvier decisions into race. They'll be better in the pits on average. They'll do all that stuff right. And if they get their car closer, they're going to give themselves a chance. Um, You know, I don't think they're going to necessarily be step for step with Ferrari on race pace, but God dang it. Like they have, they have put two cars over the finish line every week. And if they keep doing that, I'm not even aware of a power unit change they've made. I mean, it's probably just not been talked about, but like it's by far the most reliable car in the grid, even if it's not that fast yet. Yep. Yeah. As long as we're within the, in the performance window, they're, they're well suited to, to pull Ferrari back to third. And maybe to transition us to Red Bull Ferrari, just a little bit by extending my previous comment, the thing separating Ferrari and Red Bull is team performance. It's not car performance. It's arguably not even driver performance. It's team performance. And that's why Ferrari's losing. And it might be the same reason why they would get caught by Mercedes. So, Well, speaking of Ferrari, uh, despite a Leclerc victory, I can't imagine they are fully satisfied with a win this weekend when they were on pace for a 1-2 finish, which would have been massive in the Constructors' Championship with, with Perez's DNF. I mean, that would have brought them right in the gap, but now uh, the gap's 56 points. So, I mean, you'd have been looking at a 40-point gap potentially uh, without that DNF. Leclerc now just 38 points off of Verstappen. Leclerc was chasing throughout the race. I thought he might have lost it for himself. There was a, a, a point where Leclerc was trying to pass very aggressively, locked up on two separate corners, but was still able to to continue ahead, made the passes, took home the win. Uh, Signs now fourth in the constructors at risk from Russell, just five points ahead of him and 24 points ahead of Hamilton. So Signs could be be subject to to falling down the, the order several places here. I guess just um, before we get to Leclerc versus Signs, we talked a little bit about engine utilization starting to wonder more and more is this a scenario where ferrari is just pushing their engines to the max unlike red bull and mercedes where you're not really seeing engine performance be the cause of failures you are seeing it with ferraris and so are they are they at the limit and that's the explanation for their their ability to sort of maintain the pace that they have I mean, I have no idea. It, that sounds like it's plausible, but it, there's so many things about, 
you know, that people with much higher degrees in mechanical engineering can answer more than I can that affect the reliability of an ICE that I am have no, it could be the fuel system, right? Like, I, you know, I have no idea if it's something that's structurally stressed about their engines because they're pushing it harder. I, I, I don't know, but um, it does seem systemic. I mean, for sure, it's not just an isolated issue and it's going to come back to bite them later in the year. Um, Overall, man, just gutted for signs. Like I, I liked. We both were pretty positive about his win at Silverstone and getting his due. And then what do you know? After riding high, and then he comes out and he very much is on for second in that race, and has had great pace and was barely off of Charles in qualifying. I mean, he lost out by like hundredths of a second to Charles in qualifying. He was on the pace and racing well, and then he just. Literally just bur- bursts into flames. Uh, that was tough to see. I felt like I, I you saw his, um, I guess it's his brother that's his manager and is always in the pit wall. And he just, they showed him on camera almost immediately after it happened. And he was just like, oh yeah, just doubled over, just like covered his face. And I was like, I, like, I can only imagine. How I feel you. Yeah. yeah, I feel you. Like that was- I mean, as much as Leclerc has been screwed by team failures, same is true for signs and the mechanical failures. So he, he's finally seemed to get his uh, his form in order and unfortunately can't clear the, the mechanical hurdle. Uh, all right, with that, let's turn to Red Bull. Let's bring it home here. We're stopping solid performance throughout the weekend. Just nipped Leclerc and signs for P1. Couple of hundredths of a second. Solid sprint race, so much so that he, he seemed set for a race win as well, but some mid-race tire degradation, hards not working with that car, left him vulnerable to Leclerc. Fortunately for him, signs with the mechanical failure, left him in second place, while Perez, on the other hand, quite a bit more difficult weekend for him, much slower to, to get on the pace, never really found it, justifiably qualified in 13th place after the, the track limit deletion. Uh, and then the foolish decision, as we've already covered, trying to pass around the outside of turn four, left him with a, with a DNF. So, um, you know, I guess cause for concern from, from Red Bull at this point, um, doesn't seem like they're able to really explain at the moment, the, the issues that they had, uh, with Max's car and, and the tire deg, but you think too much to read into that for future races. Yeah, I, I I think there's still teams are not infrequently getting surprised by the tire window with cars. I think Red Bull's been one of the teams that seems to have been able to predict it the most uh, and control it of most teams this year. Uh, but, you know, it, it bit them. I think it was a combination of them getting higher deg than they anticipated and Ferrari also getting lower deg than they were anticipating, and those kind of happening on the same weekend. But also, lest we not forget, Leclerc only won the race by like 1.8 seconds because his accelerator almost gave out <laughs> in the last five laps. So, like, I think to put this in a category of like a systemic, maybe even existential crisis for Red Bull's relative performance would be pretty extreme at this point. Um, if it's persistent over a two or three race period, then then I think we'd have to start scratching our heads and asking questions. But I don't think we're there yet. It just seemed like they had a lot of understeer throughout the weekend, plus the the tire degradation. So it just seemed like a weird combination that 
is hard to explain with like an alternative setup, right? Like one would have thought maybe they went with some more downforce and, and therefore you were seeing the higher deck, but it just didn't seem like that based on the lines that they were taking and, and how they were driving throughout the weekend. So yeah, a bit of a mystery. So it'll be interesting to see what this looks like as we get into Paul Ricard, a similar, well, not really a similar track, more corners, a huge mix of corners and no real long straights. But before we get there, let's close out with personal podium DNF of the week. Who do you have? My personal podium is Vettel for walking out of the driver's briefing because they were talking in circles. I wish I could do that at work to your point earlier. My second place is Vettel for saying that abusive fans should be banned from races for life. I'm fully for that. If you can catch people and substantiate their, uh, their transgressions transgressions, uh, and three is Vettel for having the flow be stronger than ever and seemingly not having cut his hair all season. Yes. And yes. On the first two on the hair, I- I'm starting to get concerned. Every time I look at him, he gives me these like glimmers of Gene Wilder as Willy Wonka, <laughs> just like the, the wiry flow. So I'm not sure it's his best look, but I think it, it might be uh, better than his, um, oh shoot, the, his King of in- England look. So, <laughs> That's um, I think he'll, he'll keep the long hair probably. Um, all right. DNA. Oh, I guess for myself, I had Haas, um, hard to not team America. Let's go rock on. Second, somebody's got to stand out here and and vocalize some support for Ocon because God knows it's not going to come from you. Horrible. F- uh, I, I, I'm sorry for you that you've taken that. You're, you're in that camp. That's sad for you. It really <laughs> is, but go on. Well, having traveled to Paris and then, you know, attending the, the Montreal race, I feel like I'm a sort of a pseudo French advocate here you couldn't disagree more with the general organization of french society philosophically so for you to say (laughs) that is so disingenuous it's just not even funny (laughs) um and lastly i mean let's give credit where credit's due ferrari not blowing uh overall strategy or pit execution that is just mechanical failures this time so props to them (laughs) uh all right dnf of the week you know i love me some race stewards Oh, and uh, my DNF of the week has to come from the poor soul that was in the corner of turn two, who, if you want, that you can find this video very easily on Twitter. <laughs> so you know that moment when Carlos's car, the engine is blown up like twice. The flames are now spreading towards the front and the car will not stop rolling backwards because it's on a hill. So it's like this, this catastrophe like unfolding. And if you look above the car in the camera shot, you can see two stewards... <laughs> both with fire extinguishers running down the hill to make the turn around the guardrail to come towards the car. And one of the stewards, who was like this overweight little plump guy in the back, for whatever reason, stops running, sets his fire extinguisher down, and just runs the other direction. (laughs) Inexplicably. Like, no idea where he was going. Like, ran away from a burning car, which to me is like, I hope your name doesn't get released, because that's pretty embarrassing. (laughs) Oh, wait. Well, it definitely will. And he's thinking... Man, I don't get paid enough for this shit. <laughs> yeah, probably. I don't think they're. I don't think they're volunteers. I think they're. I think they are more properly employed, uh, or at least I certainly hope so. But look, you don't know what the process is. You don't know about the delegation of responsibilities. I am sure he was fulfilling exactly his role. He was going to get the third extinguisher as a contingency. If there. If there is a process that tells you the next step is anything other than go extinguish the burning car, then I question the manual. Like, 
rewrite the manual. <laughs> well, I'm also not sure what the guy who was next to the car with the fire extinguisher exactly. was doing for a while. He, he seemed to, wedge to let that the thing tire. burn. <laughs> yeah, he was trying to wedge the tire. That was unsuccessful. Then it seemed like he just let the car burn there for a good long while. Also, I don't know what he tried to wedge the tire with. It looked like he just threw like a rolled up t-shirt underneath it or something. I think like, they had a wooden oh. block, but at the first thought, I thought it was just his gloves he was trying to stick under there. I don't think he might need something bigger than that. But, um, all right. Well, I'm glad the stewards, uh, get their time to shine, uh, for myself, DNF of the week, have to have to pick on the other Frenchman Gasly. He is falling precipitously. Uh, and then the other one, I was, I was quick to give the British fans a lot of shit, but in retrospect, uh, I, I guess it can get worse. Uh, so have to DNF. Austrian fans. Um, God, let's just hope it doesn't get worse in France. But uh, we got France and Hungary next. And at least uh, at least Hungary last year with the booing was pretty intense. So who knows what we have in store? Time will tell. Surely the French will be more. <laughs> Surely they'll be more reserved. But then again, I guess maybe not. I don't know. They've almost given a- your low elect- opinion of them. I'm surprised you're expecting that at all. They've almost elected Marine Le Pen two different times. So, you know, I'm not sure what they're capable of. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, for that excitement, uh, you'll have to tune in. Uh, we'll do a brief look ahead on uh, Paul Ricard circuit in France. Uh, race weekend, July 22nd through the 24th. Um, yeah, that's about all I want to cover on this track. I hate this track. No, just <laughs> exactly. Uh, I look, it. I think in recent years, it has been quite a snooze fest. Basically, any action is determined on the narrowest of pit strategy. But look, that's been the case in a lot of races this season that has yielded some fascinating races as well. So I'm actually optimistic, very curious to see what happens on this circuit with the new car designed. There's two relatively short straights and DRS zones followed by a pretty dynamic mix of corners, a lot of sort of 90 degree turns, mixed speeds, relatively lower speed, I think. Um, but 15 turns, three and a half miles, um, past races, I mean, have reflected the performance of the top teams last year, Verstappen, Hamilton, Botas, Perez rounded out the order, um, with no race in 2020. So as I look ahead to this, this next race, I, I'm a bit at a loss because Austria was, was rather surprising for me as well. I, I find myself prone to some recency bias, but look, I, I think this is going to be another very close battle between Ferrari and and Red Bull. But I think given the the quantity of the corners, the relatively slower speed ones, I think Ferrari could be well positioned to to manage the the turn in speed as well as uh throttling out of the corners with their their engine that seems to be higher performing and low speed and the lack of long straights means Red Bull's going to be uh unable to capitalize on on their lower drag package. So I think I think overall good weekend potentially another win for for Leclerc barring failures in strategy or engine. But what about you? If I could just rail on the track for one moment before I do team yes, predictions, please. you know those like black and white hypnosis wheels that they spin 
and it tried. <laughs> yes. W- watching the overheads on this track is like staring at one of those wheels. With that freaking hitting, they've all, f- first off, I don't know what that final turn is called. I think it's Parabolica. The final turn before you get to the home straight. The runoff behind Parabolica is like 20 miles fucking long. And the whole thing is literally just like gaudy French, red, blue, and white painted lines, which like can't be great for traction if you spin off the track, but we'll put that aside. It's absolutely hideous and horrible on the eyes. So, well, speaking of the design, you know, just be mindful of what you do on Saturday night because I found myself in a prior year having a late night on Saturday, drinking a little bit too much and trying to wake up and watch that race with oh, like yeah, all no. of the That's a no, blue no. and red lines on the track. I, I had to turn away from the TV and subsequently just listen to the rest of the race because I I could not do it. I, I agree with your read on team performances though. Uh, I think my bold prediction is going to be, well, he, he, remember last week I said Alonzo wins. And then he didn't even get off the starting grid. And I felt like a real jackass on that one. I'm going to go back and I'm not going <laughs> to say well, yeah, I'm going to Alonzo podium. It's my bold prediction. He's going to get, he's going to get his redemption at some point. Might as well be next week. Three weeks from now. I mean, I think I'll just pull one out of the air here. And I think, um, I, I think again, I'm going Gasly. I, I just gotta, I gotta keep hoping here. I gotta hope that Alvatari pulls something out. Gasly comes behind. Or maybe this is the weekend that uh, Mick finally comes out of Magnuson's shadow. What do you think? I think that's already happened, but maybe he'll continue and be more consistent. I mean, look, he's well, okay. He finished. He finished ahead. I I'm not ready to crown him. My gripe is Magnuson doesn't cast a very big shadow to begin with. So, like, let's chill with that. Maybe. Hey, in the in the journey of a young driver, every step is is of significance. You you give off a fucking viking shadow, Kevin. <laughs> Vikings you blot you blot out the sun. <laughs> I think Gunter is uh subtly pulling for Magnus and I don't think he's ready to let let Kevin go yet. All right. Well, this is a good one, my friend. Uh with that, Graham, this has been unqualified. I think nobody's surprised by that. And uh until next race, Watch track limits. See everybody. See you.